You're listening to the new Blue Review, and I'm Benji Shulman. If you're joining us on 101.9 High FM or on the Jerusalem Post, welcome to the program. It is good to be back with you on the airways and on the internet all over the world. And this week's show is extra special, as they always are, and we're going to be focusing on two very different types of activities that you can be doing. Both, I hope, will lead to your relaxation. The first on the list, we're going to be talking Jewish meditation, trying to get into that space in your head where you are calm and relaxed and can listen to the radio. All good uh, and well. So no heavy machinery while you are listening to the show today. We're going to be talking, as I say, Jewish meditation and we're going to be speaking to Mira Niskolo. She is uh, a Parisian, and she is studying uh, the f- uh, sociology of religion in Paris. And she also just came off of a years-long study program at uh, Pardes Institute in Jerusalem. And she's doing a PhD in looking at Buddhist Jews and uh, what interaction is uh, between uh, Jews and Buddhism and has some very interesting uh, insights into Jewish meditation, what should it look like, how should it be done. And she runs her own project called Neshama. So that is uh, very going to be very, very interesting, and I'm looking forward to that. And then later on the show, we're going to be talking about going on holiday. If you're uh, starting to think about things, it is uh, now August and uh, people starting to think about the end of the year. So we're going to be looking at a bit of a travel feature, something that you might be interested in doing, particularly if you're going to Cape Town. But first, as I say, we are looking at uh, Buddhism, Jews, and meditation. And for a start, we're going to, we're going to be talking to Mira Niskanu and uh, asking her some questions about Jews and meditation. First of all, Mira, if you could start by explaining to us how did you get into uh, Jewish meditation? Yes, um, I got into Jewish meditation actually through my studies and thanks to my studies because I was studying the Jewish Buddhists. I think I could say I was one myself. I would never admit that, but as a matter of fact, that's pretty much what was happening. You know, I was meditating in Buddhist circles just because I hadn't found meditation in the Jewish world. I think this story is a classical story that many people will relate to. So I was, I was studying this for my PhD, which I'm finishing right now. And as I was doing it, I was traveling in, you know, in Israel and America, and I started um, encountering people teaching Jewish meditation and books on Jewish meditation, and uh, that really, really spoke to me. I just really feel that it's, uh, I, I want to meditate, I want to have a spiritual life, I want to have a spiritual practice. My, um, my dress in this world is Jewish, so I want to do it in my world, I want to do it in, in my culture, and, um, and I think what we have is beautiful. I don't think what we have is the only thing that exists, and I don't think it's the best, I just think it's what I belong to, and so that's how I want to blossom. So that's why I got it. I got uh, kind of involved in it, and um, I'm still using tools that I learned in the Buddhist world for myself um, because I just think they're very beautiful, sophisticated, useful, efficient tools uh, for uh, meditation, mindfulness, self-awareness. But really, um, really, I'm in the Jewish world, and that's where I'm blossoming today. Now, a lot of people assume that meditation isn't part of, of Jewish culture. Would you say that that's uh, not really a correct view uh, since this is what you're teaching? Yeah, no, it's not a correct view at all. I think it's it's coming from a lot of ignorance, but nobody's to blame because really it's, it's, it hasn't been said a lot in the Jewish world. It's starting to be said now. For people who are wondering 
Uh, Arya Kaplan, Rabbi Arya Kaplan, wrote a book in uh, 1984 called Jewish Meditation, where he actually explains a lot of sources for Jewish meditation. Avdok Ber Pinson also wrote a book, uh, I think it's called Judaism and Meditation or something, um, who talks about it. The, the truth is that we've had like a, a very, very old meditative tradition in Judaism. Um, you know, people know mostly about Kabbalah, but Kabbalah like uh, comes back a lot, very long time. Um, the, the thing is that it was just not very well known because spirituality traditionally in Judaism is a hidden tradition. It's esoteric. And so the mainstream Judaism never really had access to it. That's why it was never known. And the reason um, why these changed is because after the Shoah, after World War II, there were really a crisis in the Jewish world, also part of the counterculture. A lot of Jews were going precisely to Buddhist meditation, Hindu meditation, because they needed to find spiritual contemplative practices, and they just didn't know they had them in Judaism. And that's when rabbis reacted and started saying, okay, now I think it looks like we're going to have to give them what they want and what we have we're going to have to open the treasure box of Judaism you know it hasn't been easy because it's always been an oral tradition so what we have is mostly traces sometimes in books of the few things that have been put in, into into writing but um, but you know there have been rabbis who have been working at, um, at really really at, uh, spreading uh, like um, diffusing it, publishing it. So, like I said, uh, Arya Kaplan worked on it. Nechem Yakolin also worked on publishing a lot of the work of Yesh Kodesh, Kavin Muskam, and Shapiro. We are having PhDs now that are re- written about Jewish mysticism, Jewish meditation. Yehuda Libus writes a lot about the Zohar. He just got the Israel Prize right now. So, it's getting more and more out. It's getting more and more known. And I think more and more Jews are starting to become aware that yes, we do have a very old Jewish meditative tradition. Um, yeah. Now, I'm interested in the aspects of, of Jewish meditation that, that are there. Uh, you, you, you have said in uh, different aspects that you, you, you concentrate um, more on the ethical side versus the spiritual side. Uh, explain to yeah. us what that means. The ethical side? Yes. Yeah, okay. So, like I said before, there are two main directions in Jewish meditation. There's the mystical side, which is like the Kabbalistic side, which aims really at just direct connection with the divine. And the ethical side, which we mainly know as the Musaf tradition. Uh, but the Musaf tradition is a modern tradition, you know, it's from like the 18th century, 19th century. The truth is that the Musaf, the fact of working on yourself, um, um, has existed since centuries and centuries. And I really do think that the ancestor, like the uh, yeah, the father of Musa in a way is Maimonides. Maimonides who was advocating every night to do a cheshbon hanefesh, an accounting of the soul. Um, so what's the, what's the ethical meditation? It's, it's actually very close to Buddhism in that sense and to psychotherapy also. It's just like you want to be a good person, you want to live a good life, you have to know yourself. You have to know yourself and you have to work on yourself in order to improve your midot, your, your qualities, your inner qualities. And that's really the definition of spirituality. So I, I think I mentioned him, the French philosopher Michel Foucault. He has a book that he calls The Hermeneutics of the Subject, where he calls he talks about spirituality as, as really working on yourself to improve yourself. And that's really what it's about. Um, if you don't know this book, it's a beautiful book by Maimonides, the Shmone Prakim, um, where he really takes the, analy- the ana- analytic approach of a doctor to say, well, instead of like looking at the body, how it functions, we're going to look at the soul and how it functions. And, and, you know, my money is, he's not so well known for this, but you know, my money is talks about the middle path. He says, okay, if you see you have an excess of, let's say, um, I don't know, um, you're, you have an excess of generosity in life and you give too much all the time, 
then maybe you have to try to go a little bit the other way and be overly cautious for a little while just to reestablish the balance and find the middle path. Maimonides is talking always about looking at the way you were, you function, finding the excess and reestablishing the balance, you know. So that's an example. And then you have the modern Musa also. Um, but I do think that some, some Hasidic works, some Hasidic teachers, Rabbi Nachman, Karani Muskaim and Shapiro also, a lot of the work is also about the ethical work. You know, how, how do you treat yourself? How do you treat others? Um, looking at the divine spark within others. How do you talk about others? You know, and, and, and Rabbi Nachman is saying a lot that the others are a mirror. That whatever you see wrong in others is actually because you have something wrong in you. And having to look at the good points within others. So it's very close also to what today we call um, positive psychology, you know. Um, so that's really... Um, in very, very broad strokes what, what the ethical path of Jewish meditation is like. And I think it's very, very much worth investigating. So you've been focusing on this issue of uh, Jews and Buddhists and engaging in this idea of uh, Jewish meditation and it's somewhat different to uh, Buddhism but somewhat similar in other kinds of traditions. Uh, and you've explained to us also this range of different philosophies and aspects that actually have uh, impacted Jewish life and have also philosophy as a spiritual practice, whether it's Greek or Roman or Buddhist. So we have all of this context mm-hmm. now around uh, around prayer and uh, and meditation. So if you're a young mm-hmm. Jewish person or an old Jewish person out there, uh, what would you suggest to people who are interested in engaging with this topic of uh, Jewish meditation? Um, I think I would suggest them to... Look, it depends where they live, first of all, you know. Um, I think today in America and in Israel, you have a lot of resources in a lot of different places. Um, so they can look on the Internet, they can look on the, where they have a local meditation group, you know. I, I, I do think that they have to follow their heart and their intuition because spirituality, is, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a very thin line between uh, being true and honest and doing real work on yourself. And then I'm just talking and using the same words, but it's it's not as um, it doesn't feel as true. If you see what I mean, um, it's difficult to talk about it. But I, I think it's very important to find the right teachers, people you trust. Um, there are a lot of very different discourses out there, um, and yeah, just feeling, just looking at someone who feels true. I think that for me, the best way when I want to see if someone feels you know, true to me is I just look at the way they behave with people in their general life. I don't look at the words they use and the, I don't even look only at the teachings they give because everybody can have knowledge, everybody can open a book and everybody can use the same words, but I'm looking at the way people behave in their lives, you know, and uh, there is this Hasidic saying that you, if you want to know who's a tzaddik, you have to go and see them tie their shoes and see how they live in their, in their lives. You know, I don't know if that was your original question, but... Because it's a very wide question, right? If, if you ask me where to go in America, where to go in Israel, I could tell you, but there, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that does help to answer the question. Uh, speak to okay. us also about what you're doing specifically with your project, uh, Neshama, okay. uh, because you're also trying to impact the Jewish world to actually get people thinking uh, around these topics more intelligently. So talk to us a little bit about Neshama. Yeah. So first of all, um, the, the, the heart, the DNA of Neshama is meditation, Jewish meditation, because I really do think that it's a practice that changes life. And I really do think that if the whole world meditated, there would, there would be no violence, I'm serious. There would be no physical, no, no, no 
uh, you know, vocal violence, it would be, you know, for real. So I, I really do believe in it, and I do really believe that it helps us when we take time to contemplate, to be silent, to have, it, it, it gives us a much stronger, deeper kavana, it gives us a much deeper approach of Jewish prayer, etc. So that's one thing. But what I want to say is that the, the project of Nishama is much, is much broader than just Jewish meditation. It's, it's really a Jewish spirituality project. And in a way, it's not revolutionary in the sense that all it does is point to the spirituality that's already there all over the place within Judaism. If you look at Judaism, Judaism really is a very deeply spiritual practice. When you think about it, you know, um, and it's a very embodied practice. Uh, we, we, all the symbols, all the meaning, all the spiritual experiences, they actually go through our bodies. You know, just the fact that we pray, we bless something before we eat it. We bless after we eat. We think of creation. One of my favorite brachot is Goran um, You know, when, when we, we, bless, we thank God for creating various souls with all their needs just, just to keep them alive, you know. So I think it's so beautiful. And when we make a seda, we eat symbols when we make a seda, you know. When we go to the mikveh, we immerse ourselves in the water to purify us. So Judaism is a deeply spiritual tradition. And when you look at it the, the, the right way, I want to say, when you look at it for real, when you take time to look at it, and if you're with good people who are true, who are honest, who are inspiring, I think inspiration, aesthetics are very important. You know, it's important to have a beautiful Shabbat table, to make beautiful, good food, to make yourself beautiful, to sing beautifully. You know, to, if you go to a beautiful Kabbalah Shabbat, I really do believe that it's not just an aesthetic experience and it's not just for fun. You can really feel the prayers differently. I really believe in it. Same thing if you sing at the Shabbat table. Same thing if you take, if you take time to say the Birkat Amazon, to really say it, sing it, feel it, mean it, you know? So that's what I'm trying to do through my project is really just, just show to people what's already there. Just like, let's open our eyes and look. And when I teach Jewish meditation, you know, I was at the Nachum Goldman Fellowship recently where I met you. And I uh, offered a meditation um, uh, right before Shabbat, and we meditated on just a few psukim of the Amidah of the Mincha of Shabbat. But we're just blessing, we're just asking Hashem to give us, you know, a menucha, menuchat emet, a rest of peace, of truth, a rest of peace, a rest of love, a rest of shalva. All these very, very beautiful things, they're, they're there. We just have to look at them, we just have to embody them, and that's the invitation. That's really what I'm trying to do. So in, with the project Nishama, there is like, I offer commentaries on the Parashat HaShavua. Same thing, just to just to share with people the way the teachings of Torah resonate in my life today. Just the way they, they speak to me and they help me, they remind me of some ethical teachings I want to leave by. So Parashat HaShavua, then Shabbat we organize, we have a minyan here in Paris and we organize, you know, um, Kalabach minyan and Shabbat dinner, just, just to experience it differently with, with you know, present. And then obviously I give um, Jewish meditation classes, and so the Jewish meditation class, one, one thing I want to say also is that today the, the world of Jewish meditation is very wide and it's getting bigger and bigger, and it is, as a matter of fact, very influenced by Buddhism and especially by mindfulness meditation. I trained in mindfulness meditation. I actually uh, I have a certificate from the Jewish Mindfulness Teacher Training from the Institute for Jewish Spirituality in America, and it's an amazing place and there are amazing teachers. Um, and they're very much thinking about the, these interactions between uh, uh, Judaism and Buddhism in the way we're reshaping Jewish meditation today. Because like, like I said at the beginning, you know, we only have traces of Jewish meditation in books, and so we have to reconstruct it as a matter of fact. And obviously we're influenced by the culture that surrounds us, and this culture today, this spiritual culture, is very much informed by mindfulness. So obviously it's there, right? 
And so the um, IGS is very uh, mindful of it. And I was invited to a conference in March with them. And I was invited to write a paper about this intersection. And actually, my paper, the, the name of my paper was From Jewish Mindfulness to Mindful Judaism. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm criticizing the, the label and the practice of Jewish mindfulness because I don't think we need to um, teach mindfulness in Jewish settings and call it Jewish because it's not. I do think it's an amazing tool, but I think it's very important to separate the two and to um, enable people to know what they're actually doing. Because today you can see sometimes people in Jewish circles teaching what they call Jewish meditation. But the truth is what they're really doing is teaching Buddhism, which is fine. Buddhism is great, but I do think that then it can create confusion because people think they're doing Jewish meditation when they're literally just doing the meta practice, you know, the blessing practice of, of, um, of Vipassana or like, and I, I, and I think it's just important to know what you're doing and to know when you're borrowing, where it starts and where it stops. So the conscious choice that I've made so far is to focus only in my teachings on Jewish meditation techniques. And so I'm basically, the two main techniques I'm borrowing from um, are Maimonides, the Cheshbon HaNefesh, and I'm also doing some um, some Hidbonenut meditation on Maimonides um, uh, Shmone Prakim, and then I'm offering meditations from um, Rabbi Kaloni Muskaman Shapiro, the, the, the rabbi of the Varsu Ghetto in the 40s, on his technique that's called the Hashkata, which is basically quieting. So these are the main two techniques I'm doing, and I'm also sometimes doing the, the Gerushin technique from the, the, the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshikor, uh, no, sorry, from, uh, from uh, yeah, Moshikor Devel. Um, so these are basically the, the, the two or three main techniques that I'm offering at Mishama. So can you talk a little bit about how you do those techniques and, and also the role of social media that, uh, that you've had in, in, in spreading out this, this kind of stuff? Uh-huh. Um... Okay, uh, well, can you just specify the question, what do you mean by the role of social media? Are you asking how I'm using them? Yes. Okay, so I'm, um, I'm not too good with social media, you know, I'm learning, I have to, it's my, it's the, it's the time. Um, I'm posting, uh, sometimes I, uh, I'm, I'm doing the, what I call the Minute Parasha of Mirani Shama, and I'm, it's a few minutes where I share the, about the Parasha. And I do one, uh, pretty much, I try to do it every week, and I do one in English and one in French, French, and then I just post them, and I also post them when I don't forget, I also post them on, on YouTube, and I don't, I never know what's the real impact, because people don't actually like the posts as much as they watch them, um, but many times I'm in the street and people say, oh, that's you, you're doing this, and, and people seem to really appreciate it because I think for them, for a lot of people who don't study Torah today, it's very useful for them to have just like three minutes, four minutes of insight on the parasha, and it actually keeps Judaism closer to them, and that's all I'm aiming for, that's really what I'm working for. So that's how I'm using social media. Now my students have been asking me repeatedly to start a podcast to give uh, guided Jewish meditations, because the thing is that, you know, First of all, today we're in a very global world, and sometimes I'm in Jerusalem, and sometimes I'm in Paris, and sometimes I'm in New York, and so people can't always go to my classes, or I can't always be there, but people want to meditate, and they want to have it closer to them, and today you have a lot of meditation apps that are, are non-Jewish, and so here I'm disclosing one of my, one of my projects for, ne for next year, which is really to create a Jewish meditation app, and I'm calling all the incubators, sponsors, partners, if you want to really invest in an amazing project, talk to me. I think I think it's going to be amazing, but I'm, I'm really at the, just at the beginning stage right now. Um, parenthesis closed. 
So, um, but but soon enough, I think what I'm going to do in the upcoming months, I'm just going to do very simple guided meditations that I'm going to post on, on on YouTube because, again, people have been asking for this, and I, I think this is what uh, people need. And and today that's how it works. You know, you have to put a lot of content out there that's available for people for free, and then and then slowly, slowly you build your own um, your own own um, you know brand and, and products and everything that goes with it. Um, so that's the way I've been using social media. Now, you were asking, what does a, a meditation session look like? Yes, wh- when you do one with these different techniques that you're teaching, how, how does it yeah. work? Give us a sense of the process. Okay, so you know what? I'm going to tell you what happened yesterday. Yesterday I was in the mood of France, in Paris. They had the just one day in the mood, to, uh, and I gave a meditation session. And yesterday I decided to do only the Hashkata. Um, what I do, you know, changes all the time. Sometimes I focus on the Parashata Shavuah, and then we do some Kibbunimut, which is like self-inquiry on it, or Gerushin, which is like contemplation on the verse, on the Pasuk. Or uh, most of the time I start with Cheshbon uh, HaNefesh, which is like an accounting on, on the soul for my mother. So yesterday I did only the Hashkata. So basically, um, um, how we start usually, we start with a Nigun. You know, in Hasidut, Nigunim are very, very central spiritual practice. It's all about you know, vi- vi- the vibration of the voices all together, and so you become your ego becomes more silent because it's not about your own wor- words and your own discourse and interacting with each other in this in this way. It's about being together with the vibrations of the voice, and the vibration is very is very powerful, you know. And singing over and over and over the same melody really um, brings people together because the way we practice Jewish meditation. It's very moving to me because it's both very internal. We're all within ourselves, and at the same time, we're doing it together. In a way, you could compare it to um, Amida, you know, the Amida, which is the most intimate um, prayer experience that we do. We you, we wish for for ourselves, but at the same time, we do it together. Um, so this is one of the things. Uh, one of the things we do. Uh, we, we we focus on that on that that um, how do you say that that beautiful paradox of being both within and and together. So we start with the nigun, and then um, usually I, I explain to people what we're about to do, and for instance, I explain the context of the hashkata, where it comes from, and which book, you know, um, and what's the purpose of that technique, and basically, Bekitsura, I'll tell you very, very, very short. Rav um, he said basically, okay, what happens? He starts with this saying, it's in his book um, written by one of his disciples called Berach HaMelech, the, the, the path of the king. He's saying, you know, uh, he starts with this quote from the Talmud in Brachot, um, dream is the 60th of prophecy. So that's one of the things that he's aiming for, is this kind of state of prophecy, which really just means that you have a direct channel between you and the divine. That's really what he means by prophecy. That's not clogged, that's not veiled by the ego, pretty much what he calls Nishut, Nishut Shaladam, like the, the, be, the, um, the I am, the being of, of human beings. And so he said, when you dream, you have closest, closer access to prophecy because your ego is not there in the way. Um, and so he's saying, let's find a, a state of being that's in between being awake and in between sleeping. So he's not saying it explicitly, but when you read it and when you do meditation today, you interpret it as, okay, that's the state of meditation. That's by definition the state of meditation when you're in between you know, being asleep and being awake. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. Chaifem.com, and this is the new Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman. We'll take a short break. When we get back, we're speaking again to Mira Niskalu. 
You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review. And you are listening to Mira Nisklu. She is talking about Jewish meditation. And just before the break, we were discussing what does a Jewish meditation look like? What are some of the theories around it? Uh, and uh, that is where we're going to carry on talking. Mira, explain to us what does a, a Jewish meditation session look like? Okay. So um, it depends on the theme of the day, but let's say I'm going to do something like I did yesterday at, at Limut Friends, which is Hashkata, which is a quieting technique from the Piazesne Rebbe, the Rav Kalanimus Kaman Shapiro. Uh, usually I start with an igun. We always open with an igun to kind of tune yourselves and, you know, land into the place. Then I'm going to explain the, the technique we're going to do, where it comes from, the text, you know, the purpose of that technique. And as I'm talking, I'm inviting people to get in their bodies, you know, so at the beginning looks very much like a typical... Uh, you know, body scan, get into your body, get close to your breathing, but really, um, this is to get people in the mood. And then we, we do the method. And for instance, the Hashkata is a three-part meditation where the first part is just, just literally sitting in silence, doing nothing. And as, as the Ashkodesh says, observing your thoughts. Then there's a second part where you do what, what he says you call a Marshavai Chachela. Kedusha. You call one thought, one holy thought, which is like a quality, a midah that you want for yourself. It can be shlemut, you know, fullness, ahava, you know, it can be patience, koach, whatever you need, and you, you just repeat that to yourself. And then the third part is a closing nigun. So that's, 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 you know, and then, and then there's always a path for questions, for sharing, for people to have the space to share their experience. And it's always very interesting because then you see, you know, what, what's similar in people's experiences, what's different, but it's very important for people to hear about other people's experiences. Um, there are other types of meditation sessions where I start with like a kavana, where I ask people what's their kavana, why they came here, what they what they came to look for, you know, and where we do a chashbon nefesh, we do like a kind of like accounting of ourselves to kind of check in like what our week was like, what our month was like. We do that in Rosh Chodesh, you know. So it, d- it depends, but basically that's the structure. It's like nigun, guided meditation, silent meditation, nigun, sharing. Now it looks like something I wanted to ask you. Obviously, you're mm-hmm. a, a young woman. Uh, you yeah. doing your PhD in in this topic, uh, but uh-huh. does does do you come up against uh, problems because uh, people feel like well maybe this isn't a very Jewish thing or not very orthodox thing maybe uh, they, uh-huh. they don't trust you because you're a woman is, is that an issue that you face when you're trying to do these sorts of meditation sessions? Okay, that's a very interesting question. Uh, there are two different questions: the question of like is it orthodox, is it Jewish, or uh, and and the other question about me as a teacher being a young woman. So I'll start with the first question. Um, you know, to my surprise, actually, I um, I didn't have a lot of people questioning what I'm doing just because I'm very clear and very upfront in my website and everything. You know, sometimes people ask the question, but the, the second you explain what you're doing, where it comes from, which rabbis, etc., like people are really, I guess, going with it. And, and you know what? If people are still wondering and questioning, you know, well, you know, they can just question and wonder. I mean, I don't, I can't, you know. Uh, so that's it's basically this, but I, I, I do feel that people, as as long as you show them where it's coming from, what you're doing, and that you're very clear, they they consider it's kosher and they're right too. And so you know, even in France, when I came, because I started doing this in New York when I lived in New York, and when I came to France, I thought maybe people are gonna be more cautious, more um, because because they're you know, France is let's let's face it, France is like 20 years behind America and Israel today, French Judaism. 
And yet, um, I've been invited to teach both in like reform settings and also in like orthodox, like pretty orthodox settings. So I was very glad. Um, now, being a woman, I would say that um, de facto, like as a matter of fact, it hasn't prevented me from teaching in various spaces, like I said, including orthodox and etc. Um, now I can see that sometimes um, it is a challenge, no matter no matter what, it is a challenge. Sometimes people come to me after a session, you know, and they say. Oh, you know, I came here and I saw you and I just saw like this kind of like cute young lady and I thought, who is she? Like, that's a joke. Why does she have to teach me, you know? And then, okay, then you started talking and, but sometimes the first impression that people have because I'm, you know, I'm young and I dress like a little Parisian young woman, you know, like, so people have, they do have like cliches in their minds and they do have prejudices. Um, thank God most of the time they still come because they're curious. I think curiosity is stronger than prejudice. And then they hear me talk and they realize I'm not, I'm not a kid and I, and I know what I'm doing and I'm sincere and uh, I think that's what matters is when you really are sincere and serious, sincere and serious and talking from the heart and, uh, you know. Um, however, I have seen sometimes um, people, like I've seen the difference with some colleagues of mine who are meditation teachers, no matter what I do today, I think I will never get the, the kavod, the respect that some of my colleagues get because they're male, they're, you know, Orthodox rabbis have a little beard, they're married, they have children, and there's this kind of daddy transference no matter what you do, which makes that basically for them, they come and their legitimacy is guaranteed. Like everybody's going to trust them, everybody's like admiring them, like, oh my god, this, because, oh, that's a rabbi and he meditates, oh my god, he's so cool, you know? So they would have to be really bad in order for people to miss, to end up like not trusting them. Me, it's almost the opposite, it's like, who is she? And like I would have to be really good for people to start trusting me. That's basically the, the challenge. It's not, you know, it's not preventing me from doing things, but I can definitely see that sometimes it's still, it's still maybe slowing me down a little bit in my career at this point. Sometimes, you know, with some people. Um, but yeah, thank God it's not, it's not, it's not just that. And there are also people who see me and invest in me and support my work. And um, and I guess when I'm older with gray hair and I'm married again and stuff, I, I'll, I'll get as much about as my male peers, you know. Now, the other thing I was yeah. very interested in in uh, speaking to about, and you are two months away from putting in your PhD, which means it's amazing that you're even talking to us uh, at all. I know. Uh, uh, but you also just spent a last year of your life at uh, Pardes Institute, which yeah. is a yeshiva uh, seminary institute in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. interested, what was it like to be simultaneously doing work uh, as a PhD research uh, that academic process whilst at the same time learning Torah uh, and engaging mm -hmm. with Jewish texts that's also an interesting question so you're not talking in terms of time management you're talking in terms of like dealing with two different worlds from a, two, from a different perspective right I think from a time management perspective it wouldn't be very helpful for you to tell us because <laughs> clearly no one could do that uh, it's quite an amazing feat that you've managed to do it even to begin with so uh, maybe just talk to us from the different perspectives uh, to begin with yeah 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 yeah, so yeah, time management was very challenging. Um, so there is a category in academia which we call uh, scholar-practitioner. Scholar-practitioner is someone who both is inside, he's an insider in the topic he's studying as a scholar. So he participates, he's a learner, he's a student, he's a teacher, you know. In America, you do have like, you know, teachers of Jewish thought who are also rabbis or teachers of, of, of Buddhist studies who are also Buddhist teachers, you know. The, the category of scholar-practitioner, which is very um, criticized in France, is actually very much accepted and understood in, um, in the American culture. 
Um, I think when I started, it was a bit challenging sometimes, but I got really used to it because I've been doing this for a while now. And I think just simply, uh, uh, it's just about switching, I guess, switching your gaze. Uh, so when I'm in the academic world, I really look at things as a sociologist, as an anthropologist. Um, yeah, I have this kind of analytical eye. And then when I'm in yeshiva, when I'm learning texts or when I'm learning and studying Jewish meditation, and by the way, I want to say when you introduced me, you introduced me so beautifully, but you said I was an expert or specialist or whatever. I just want to say I'm a student, you know, like, um, um, it's important for me to say, like, I don't, I don't think nobody, you know, in, in Judaism, actually, uh, a sage or whatever, people call them a Talmud, a Talmud, and I think it's just, that's just really how I want to, um, introduce myself as like as a Talmida, as a student and so that's what I was doing this year in Jerusalem and when I'm doing it I'm just doing it as a student so it's basically just about switching switching my gaze and being re- reflexive all the time about where am I and how am I doing it and um, just re- reflexivity helps you know okay great no that is uh, very yeah. very interesting and where can people find uh, your Nashama project if they're interested in your your social media, if they happen to be in Paris and want to do a class, uh, where can they find out more? Right, thank you. So this summer, I'm going to be in Paris the whole summer, so we're going to have a Sunday night class, and I think the easiest is just really to contact, to find me on, on, on the internet, so either you go to my website, nishamameditation.com, or you find me on Facebook, I have a page, Jewish Meditation. I also have like my profile on Facebook, which is Mira uh, Nishama Meditation. And I also have an email, obviously, it's mira at nishamameditation.com, and you just can shoot me an email, and then you'll have all the info. Also, if you if you sign up on the on my website to the to the newsletter or or on the Facebook, you know, to the page, if you like the page, then you really have will have all the updates. Because I'm going to go back to um, Jerusalem in Nachtesham in the fall for the Chagim, and I'm going to resume. I was offering a Jewish meditation class in Paris last year, so I'm going to in Nachtesham resume this class. Um, so you can have all the info. I think I think it's just the beginning of a lot of things, uh, teaching in different places and also developing these online uh, guided meditations and stuff. So just best best thing is to be in touch with me and to to follow how things are um, growing. You know. Miriam Nisklu, thank you so much for being with us on the new Blue Review, and uh, best of luck with uh, all your work in Jewish meditation and spirituality. Thank you so much, Benji. It was such a pleasure, and best uh, lacha for everything you're doing. And I just want to bless everybody that we all may be conscious and loving with each other, really. That's all. Thank you so much to Mira Neskalou. She is there speaking to us all the way from Paris, talking to us about the fascinating topic of Jewish meditation. And uh, if you're interested in her stuff, go check out Neshama on the Internet. Just Google it and you can see Mira's uh, weekly videos and the workshops that she does if you're interested in a Jewish meditation. And now, uh, moving along to our next part of our program and talking about travel. We want to relax in some other kind of way and maybe find you a cool place to travel to maybe uh, if you need to do some meditation find you a beach somewhere and as i said at the beginning of the show it is moving towards the end of the year and so people are looking for things to do and so we thought we'd bring you one of them on the show right here on the new blue review many jewish south africans many south africans in general go down to cape town for the end of the year and that is cool there's lots of Joe Burgers, as we all know, who are there. But maybe you've done it all before. Maybe you've climbed the mountain, sat on the beach, drunk all the wine, uh, eaten the cheese, done all of that in Cape Town, and you're looking for something a bit different and a bit new. 
And if you are, well, then today's segment is definitely going to be right up your alley because we are looking at a particular place that uh, I think we'll find very, very interesting. You can do it with your kids. You can do it by yourself. And in my opinion, is one of the un polished gems of the west coast of South Africa. What am I talking about? Well, if you go north of Cape Town and you drive for a little while, you'll get to a place called Langabarn. Uh, Langabarn is a, a bay, which is about approximately 150 kilometers north of Cape Town, and uh, very, very famous for nice sea views, interesting tasting fish, uh, all this kind of thing. But what is perhaps less well-known is something called the West Coast Fossil Park, which is located in uh, uh, Langebaan. And the reason that there is a fossil park there is that it turns out millions and millions of years ago, Langebaan was covered in a, a sort of gooey, muddy, uh, f- salt plain type of thing. Uh, today it's a, a bay that goes into the sea, but this was more like a lake uh, several million years ago. And so a lot of creatures which lived in that area uh, died and uh, ended up uh, falling to the bottom of the lake and being fossilized. And so it is one of the world's largest deposits or greatest deposits of mammal bones from from that era. And all sorts of mammals that you've never believed existed actually lived in uh, this area of Langebaan way before the humans ever got there. And uh, it was an interesting story because it was a, a limestone mine for a long time. Uh, they used to blast a lot of rocks there and mine stuff and for a long time, people didn't know that this was any kind of archaeological site or paleontological site, really. And and so the bones that we have are the ones that are left after all the blasting was done. So, so probably a few million years worth of bones were exploded, and goodness knows what maybe has been destroyed in that area. But nonetheless, the stuff that's le- left is absolutely fascinating. So, for example, the only bear that has ever been found south of the Sahara was found in this uh, uh, West Coast Fossil Park. And they have short-necked giraffes and different kind of antelopes. And there's frogs and all sorts of other creatures that they're now starting to dig up and recreate at the park. And you can be a part of that process. So if you or one of your kids has ever wanted to feel what is it like to be, I hate to call him an Indiana Jones or Tomb Raider because those people sort of break all the stuff that they find, but you can actually go as a person to the park and do a tour and get a sense about what were all these animals doing, living all these millions of years ago, what do they look like, what kind of lives were they living, and they actually take you to the actual dig and you can go and look through the bones and 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 have a look at uh, what is is going on and it is absolutely a, an incredible experience if you've never had the opportunity because you know there are uh, other places that you can look at bones in South Africa and we'll talk about a bit about them as well but this is a real opportunity where you can see it being done right in front of you. Uh, when I went, you have little like frog bones that you could look at um, and like sort through. They've got a little coffee shop there and uh, a park as well that you can have a look at. And it's it's all quite cheap and, and easy and fun. And so if you're looking for something a little bit different to do on your holiday in Cape Town, then I would definitely suggest going to the West Coast Fossil Park. Have a look it up. Just Google it. West Coast Fossil Park. They've got a whole website. Uh, it's got all the opening times, the closing times, the costs, and uh, what the kind of stuff that you can do. You can book a tour 
and and just go and have a look and understand what South Africa looked like uh, from that perspective. And if you've got a young person and they are interested in dinosaurs and trying to, you know, dig up things, it, it definitely is a an amazing experience and one which I would completely suggest that uh, if you have a bit of time on your uh, December holidays going down to Cape Town that you take a bit of a drive up to Langebaan and uh, get yourself some fish and go enjoy the West Coast Fossil Park because it is, in my opinion, the one of the unexplored and uh, less well-known gems of the West Coast and South Africa in general. And, and there's lots of other places as well. Uh, if you if you into this thing, of course, you can try go to Sturkentine and to the Cradle of Humankind. Uh, even close to home here in Johannesburg, you can uh, pitch up at uh, the Origin Center where they do this kind of stuff very uh, well and uh, Marapeng. So there's all sorts of places that are there and very well worth visiting. But I say, if you're in Cape Town, West Coast Fossil Park is the place to be. And uh, that brings us to the end of the show for this particular fossil. Uh, I am Benji Shulman, and thank you so much for having joined us. Thank you for the team having put it all together, Vusi and uh, Mandy, who are our sound and uh, producers, respectively. And if you have any comments or criticisms uh, or compliments on the show, please let us know. Uh, me, I'm at Benji underscore Shulman, uh, or you can email us at at Benji, excuse me, at hi.co.za. Always happy to see uh, what you think of the show. But until then, uh, shalom, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your week.